So Lord God, we thank you that you know our name, that you know us, and we pray that you would know us now through the power of your word, that you would penetrate our hearts with your presence, and that we would bear the fruit of righteousness. Lord God, you know how we're ashamed. You know how we're afraid. You know how we hide ourselves. We confess that to you. In fact, if you're hiding right now, just confess that to the Lord. Oh, thank you that you provide for us. You cover us. You cleanse us. You call us your own. And now, Lord God, may we hear you. In Jesus' name, amen. In 1982, Larry Walters was a truck driver in Los Angeles. At the age of 33, he would sit in his backyard every Saturday in his favorite lawn chair. He lived in a subdivision near LAX. All the houses looked the same. Backyards looked the same. Chain link fences looked the same. So he'd sit there. Every day, Saturday afternoon, for hours, he'd sit there drinking a a six-pack of beer. One particular Saturday, Larry Walters got this bright idea. He was probably on his sixth beer by by this point. He he thought, wouldn't it be cool to go get some balloons and attach them to my lawn chair? And then I could just float up a little bit over the neighbor's yard. Not being a physicist, but a truck driver, Larry didn't know how many balloons to get, so he got 45 weather balloons. Then he made a couple peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, grabbed a six-pack. With his neighbor's help, he filled the weather balloons with helium, fastened them to his Jeep, and then fastened them to the lawn chair, his 1995 Kmart lawn chair. He, He then took the sandwiches, the beer, and a BB gun and sat down in the chair. See, his plan was to shoot out the weather balloons if the ascent was too rapid and too difficult. His plan was just to float, you know, like... 40, 50 feet above the, the, the neighbor's yard. Well, he set the BB gun on his lap and he said to his neighbors, let her go. But he didn't just go 50 or 60 feet up in the air. He shot immediately up to 16,000 feet. <laughs> he didn't shoot out any of the weather balloons because he's hanging on too tight to his chair. He was first spotted by the captain of a DC-10 who radioed to the tower, I just passed a guy in a lawn chair. <laughs> They diverted traffic around LAX for four hours while Larry Walters sat in his lawn chair. They sent helicopters, aircraft, searchlights on the ground because by this time it was getting dark. And finally, they guided him safely down to the ground. You can imagine how Larry looked getting off his his lawn chair. Sirens and lights and and fire trucks and news crews and and this one uh, cameraman and his uh, the anchor they ran up to Larry Walters put a microphone in his face and said Larry Larry were you scared and he said yep <laughs> and then they asked a million million dollar question they said Larry why would you do such a thing and he said well you can't just sit there. <laughs> Well, that's Larry Walters right there. You can't, you can't just sit there. Hey, you probably have heard that if you take a frog and you drop it in a pot of boiling water, 
it, it won't just sit there, it will immediately jump out. But if you put the frog in water, and they actually ran experiments on this in the 19th century, I was reading about it, and you turn the, the water up really, really gradually, really slowly, well, the, the frog will just sit there. It will just sit there till it boils to death. Maybe we're all just sitting there. Little kids can't just sit there. They just naturally dream of flying. They attach a cape to their back, climb up on the roof, jump off, dreaming of being Superman, a superhero, saving the world. Uh, my son Coleman, he used to play at Hercules, remember, who sacrificed himself, descended into Hades and beat death itself. Little kids are born with like superhero dreams. I remember my very first memory, or one, at least one of my first memories, was in Junction City, Kansas. I was on the front porch. I think we even have a slide of that. This porch right here. I was on this porch with my friend Cash. Those are my kids, but this was a long time ago. And I, I remember this. I remember uh, Cash sitting on his tricycle. He looked at me and he said, Watch this! And then he just took off like a rocket right down those cement steps. And it did not go as Cash envisioned. I remember him coming back about a half hour later with medicine and ointment plastered all over his scraped up face. This world has a way of beating those superhero dreams right out of you. And you begin to think to yourself, you know, maybe I ought to just sit here. Sociologist Ernest Becker wrote, youth was made for heroism. And I suppose that's true. Youth was made for heroism. And then comes middle age. I have this news release in my files. I'm going to read it to you. Tahlequah, Oklahoma. A 32-year-old man apparently lost his balance and fell to his death from a 64-foot-high water tower on which he had just finished spray-painting the words, No Fear. Oh, that's a midlife crisis, isn't it? I bet Larry Walters was having a midlife crisis. When I was Larry's age, I borrowed my friend's brand-new Jeep and took my bride jeeping up on Mosquito Pass above Leadville. At one point, we came upon this bog filled with abandoned vehicles, and Susan said, don't! And so, of course, I did. I punched it, and we just shot off the edge into the bog and spent the next four hours waist-deep in mud trying to dig this jeep out. And then the four hours after that, hiking through the woods down into Leadville, when we got to the garage and I explained to the guys where the Jeep was, they all looked at each other, started laughing, and said, Bird's eye bog! Bird's eye, bird's eye bog. We spent the night at the Silver King Motel in nothing but underwear and mud. <laughs> that had actually been a fantasy of mine, but, <laughs> but, but Susan, she wouldn't let me touch, me, touch her. All night long, she, she wouldn't let me touch her. We, we were up all night watching the Weather Channel because a storm was coming in, and we knew that if it snowed, it, it would be spring until we got the Jeep out. It was October, November, it would be spring, and I would have to buy my friend Gary Reddish a brand new Jeep. That's what they call bad stewardship. Driving new Jeeps into bogs, flying lawn chairs into DC-10s, losing your life, spray painting no fear, on a water tower, bad, bad stewardship. Well, we finally got the Jeep out, which is another great story, but for the last 17 years, no lie, whenever I'm tempted to take risks, go on some adventure, my beloved bride will just look at me and she'll say these three words, bird's eye bog. <laughs> Tony Campolo tells about watching the musical Man of La Mancha when the woman next to him began 
scolding her husband. She began saying, John, John, stop that. John, stop it. You're exposing yourself. Stop it, John. You're exposing yourself. Seated next to her was a middle-aged businessman dressed in a very nice three-piece suit. He was crying uncontrollably as the actor on stage was singing to dream the impossible dream. Most men leave lives of quiet desperation, wrote Henry David Thoreau. Most men leave li lead lives of quiet desperation and go to the grave with the song still in them. The song. What song is that? The last time I sobbed in a theater was in 2009. And I remember trying to hide it from my bride and, and my kids. I was in the process of dying to a whole bunch of dreams and this movie just got to me. It was about a man named Carl Fredrickson who even as a little boy dreamed of adventure. He fell in love with a childhood friend who also dreamed of adventure. Upon their first meeting to receive him into her explorers club, she pinned the Ellie badge on his sweater, a grape, a grape uh, soda, uh, soda cap top uh, with a safety pin. It symbolized the spirit of adventure. The first five minutes of the movie portrays the next 70 years of Carl's life. He and Ellie eventually marry and set out on their adventure, but sadly, Ellie, who wants to have children, can't have children, but together they dream of visiting Paradise Falls in Venezuela, South America. They save for their trip, but every time they're about ready to go, something else comes up and they have to postpone uh, the trip eventually. Ellie dies, and Carl just sits there, alone in his house, grumbling about everyone and everything, everyone, and including Russell, the young wilderness explorer who keeps knocking at his door. Russell is a fatherless boy, and Carl is a boyless father. Well, the night before they come to take him to the retirement home, the night before they come to demolish his house because his house has been condemned, Carl finds Ellie's old adventure book and then comes up with a bright idea. gentlemen. Good morning, Mr. Fredrickson. You ready to go? <laughs> ready as I'll ever be. Would you do me a favor and take this? I'll meet you at the van in just a minute. That's typical. He's probably going to the bathroom for the 80th time. <sighs> You'd think he'd take better care of his house.
I suspect that that movie Op was inspired by Larry Walters. October 6, 1993, at the age of 44, Larry Walters took a walk in Angeles National Forest, pulled out a gun, shot himself in the heart, and died alone. I guess 16,000 feet in a lawn chair wasn't enough. In the words of Thoreau, he must have gone to the grave with the song still in him. Well, in Luke chapter 19, Jesus tells a fascinating story that comes on the heels of a story about Jesus that we preached on in the spring, the story of Jesus and Zacchaeus. Hopefully you remember Luke 19, 1 and 2. Jesus is passing through Jericho, and there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and rich. I imagine he was middle-aged and looked about like Carl Fredrickson. When he wasn't collecting taxes at his tax table, he would sit alone in his house at his dinner table. Well, Jesus meets him on a tree and says, Zacchaeus, come down. I will stay at your house today. And that's a, that's a big deal because, you see, Jesus is offering what Bible scholars call table fellowship to a notorious sinner, a man whom Luke describes as one that is lost or destroyed. To sit at table and eat with someone in Jesus' day was to invite them into intimate communion. It was to create something of a covenant and even a miniature sanctuary. Zacchaeus is so thrilled that Jesus would come to his house that he throws a banquet, a feast, and he stands up at the feast and he makes a declaration saying they will give half of his possessions to the poor and he will restore anyone that he has wronged fourfold. Basically, he sacrifices his house. He sacrifices his life. He sacrifices his security. He lays it all on the table like a song. And Jesus says, today, salvation has come to this house. Salvation. For you see, when Zacchaeus sat alone in his house, he sat alone in hell, or at least trapped by hell, what the Bible calls Hades. The long, dull, monotonous years of middle-aged prosperity or middle-aged adversity are excellent campaigning weather, writes Uncle Screwtape to his demon nephew in C.S. Lewis' novel, The, the Screwtape Letters. Screwtape goes on to explain how hard it is to tempt the young, but how easy it is to tempt the middle-aged because they've given into the policy of safety first. And they've knitted their very hearts uh, to this earth. Then Screwtape writes this, whatever you do, Wormwood, keep your patient as safe as you possibly can. Your affectionate uncle, Screwtape. In another place, Lewis wrote, the only place outside of heaven where you can be perfectly safe from all the dangers and perturbations of love is hell. And you see, I think that's why I was sobbing in the movie theater. I had just spent 15 years building Lookout Mountain Community Church, and now I was giving it up. But it really wasn't the house. It was the people 
I'd invested my life in so many people, but now so many people have been taken away. And so many people were truly angry with me. I felt this intense temptation, this intense temptation to never, ever, ever give my heart away again. And I think I've struggled with that mightily for the last seven, eight years. And now slogans that had no appeal to me whatsoever in my 20s make a whole lot of sense. Slogans like safety first. Life is precious. Don't risk it. Hang on. And yet something in me realizes that's quiet desperation. And if I do that, I'll go to the grave with a song stuck in my dark, hard, and goddamned heart. Verse 9, and Jesus said to Zacchaeus, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. That's that word apolos, which can be translated the destroyed, the, the, the perished. A lost one would be someone with a goddamned heart. And what I mean by that is a heart that's been condemned. It's condemned. A heart that's locked up and closed in on itself. Someone trapped in Hades. And Jesus says, I came to seek and to save the lost. Those trapped in Hades. I came to save the, well that, wow, that would be quite an adventure, wouldn't it? You know the words adventure and advent both come from the same Latin roots, meaning something is about to happen. Someone is about to arrive. Next verse, Luke 19, 11, as they heard these things. So, so this is important. Jesus is telling this story at Zacchaeus' house, at Zacchaeus' table, the trapeza. It's a loaded word in Scripture. Number one, used for any banqueting table. Number two, used for the table on which they put the showbread in the temple. And number three, used for a table in which people exchange money, like at a tax collector's table or a bank where you might invest your resources. Luke 19, 11, as they heard these things, Jesus proceeded to tell a story, a parable, because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. And yet, the kingdom of God had, well, it had kind of just appeared at Zacchaeus' house, right? It didn't mean sitting on stockpiles of food while shooting at the armies of the Antichrist. It meant throwing parties for tax collectors and sinners. Next verse, Jesus said, therefore, a nobleman a nobleman or a royal man, uh, uh, someone with royal blood, went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. And that's a little bizarre. But can you think of, of a, a person of royal birth, like, you know, a son of the king, who's about to leave and come back having inherited a kingdom? Jesus said, therefore, a man of royal birth went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas. Now, a mina is a coin worth about three months' wage. He gave them ten minas and said to them, engage in business until I come. Engage in business is a Greek verb, uh, pragmateomai. It's where we get our word pragmatic, and it basically means do stuff. Do business. Do business. Engage in business. Concordance defines the word as putting capital to work. This is the foundation of capitalism. This is the foundation of the Protestant work ethic. It's capitalism 
but with one important caveat. The capitalists don't own the capital. It's all their master's capital and they are slaves. They're stewards, they're stewards. Matthew records Jesus telling a story very similar to this one in just a few days in a little different situation. In Matthew's version, Jesus gives each one of the servants uh, talents. Uh, he gives each a different amount, one, three, and five talents. In Luke's version, this version, he gives each the same amount, one mina. And I find that interesting because uh, Jesus does give each of us the, the, the very same thing, right? The same thing he gives each of us his life. And Jesus gives each of us a different thing. Talents, gifts, abilities with which we each individually and uniquely express his life. Well, he gave the 10 servants 10 minas and said to them, engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we don't want this man to reign over us. And that's a little bizarre too. But can you think of a delegation or some spokesman like for a crowd saying something to, you know, like a Roman official or something like, we have no king but Caesar. We do not want this man reigning over us. Next verse, verse 15. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him saying, Lord, your mina has made 10 minas more. And he said to him, well done, good servant. Because you have been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over 10 cities. So his reward for his work is more work. Specifically managing cities. That is economies. And you know, an economy is a weird thing. It's like, everything and nothing all, 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 all at once. I mean, when the news reports that on a particular day the market has crashed and the economy is in turmoil, nothing has really happened. I mean, the exact same workers wake up with the exact same resources in the exact same world with the exact same amount of capital. Nothing has happened. And yet, Everything has happened, for it's all ground to a halt. Because someone somewhere, or many people everywhere, all of a sudden, filled with fear, have decided to play it safe and hang on to their capital. It's like when a person has a heart attack. What is that? One blood vessel has decided to hang on to its blood. And thus, that heart is damned, literally damned, because it won't bleed, because it won't circulate blood. And at that point, that person is lost, apollolos, perished, good as dead. Well, anyway, the reward for the good steward's work is more work, more investing. In Matthew, Jesus calls it entering the joy of the master. Verse 17, well done, good servant. Because you have been faithful in very little, you shall have authority over 10 cities. And the second came saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, and you are to be over five cities. You know, I used to think that Jesus told these stories wrong. Because there's no servant in the story that invests and gets no return. 
Yet in life, there seem to be people that will invest everything and lose everything, right? I mean, it's not like the health and wealth preachers would have you believe. There are disciples, like Jesus' disciples, who give everything and end up poor and chained in stocks and prison cells and fed to lions. There are people who love with all that they've got and end up betrayed, beaten, and crucified naked on a tree. But Jesus seems to say there are no stewards who invest and get no return. Luke 18, 30. Truly I say to you, there is no man who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive manifold more in this life and in the age to come eternal life. In this life. So think of Zacchaeus. He's just lost his fortune. But I think he just gained a lifelong party. In this life and in the age to come, eternal life. Like, if you lose your life for my sake, said Jesus, you will find it if, if you lose your life. But, but maybe it's not really your life. Maybe it's Christ's life because he said, I am the life. And that would imply that he himself is the king's mina that he asks each of us to invest. He is the word, and the word will not return void. Even if there comes a point where he is betrayed, beaten, and crucified naked on a tree, looking like the worst steward that ever stood on the face of this earth. You know, I hope you realize that in order to be the good steward that Jesus is talking about, there must come a point where and when you look like a terrible steward. I mean, there's a moment in which the steward has to hand over his mina and have nothing. Because you see, the mina was one coin. It was all or, or nothing. To invest it, the steward has to hand it over. He has to deliver it up. Paradidomai would be the appropriate Greek word here that's also translated betray. The steward has to place the mina on the trapeza, the banker's table. I find that strangely comforting, though, because that means that there may come a time when, when you look like a terrible steward. I mean, a time when you feel like you've given everything and seen no return on your investment. A time when you've loved a group of people or maybe a bride only to be betrayed, beaten, and hung naked on a tree. A time when you've given your life and cannot take another breath. All you can do is surrender your spirit. Well, you see, if, if you're in that spot now or you find yourself in that spot in the near future, it doesn't mean you're a bad steward. But if you never find yourself in that spot, it means you are. You've played it safe. And now, you're safe as hell. Well, upon his return, the nobleman rewards the first two servants for investing their mina, that is, his mina, verse 20, Jesus continues his story. Then another came saying, Lord, here's your, your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief, for I was afraid of you. Because you are a severe man, 
You take what you did not deposit. You reap what you did not sow. Ask yourself, what could God reap that he did not sow? What could the creator take that he did not deposit? Nothing, right? And yet we act like it's everything because we cry out to God, God, why have you taken everything away from me? But we could just as easily cry out, God, why have you given everything to me? And that's a good question. Why has he given everything to you? Why does he give and take away? Why does, why does he do that? Well, this third steward does not trust that the king is good. So in fear, he plays it safe, making absurd statements like, you take what, what you did not give and you reap where you did not sow. You are a severe man. Is God a severe man? Well, God became a man and he gave his life. Jesus is the life. He is the seed that is sown. He is the word of God through whom all is created. He's God's word and God's word is God's judgment and God's judgment is a sword. It's a flaming sword that cuts to the division of soul and spirit, joint and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So is God a severe man? Well, it depends on how you define severe. Sometimes mercy is severe. Well, the servant says, I was afraid of you because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and you reap what you did not sow. Verse 22, the king says to him, I will condemn you with your own words. Like the measure you give is the measure you get. I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man taking what I did not deposit, reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put your money in the bank? Literally, why did you not put your money on the trapeza? And at my coming, I might have collected it with interest. In other words, maybe you were afraid, but you were not afraid of me because you don't even see me the one who gives you all things. Fear is the beginning of wisdom, but I am the end of fear. If you saw me truly, you'd imitate me and you would put your mina on the table. Jesus continues, the king said to those who stood by, Take the mina from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. It's not, it's not fair. He has ten minas. And Jesus says, I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Even what he has. That, that would leave him with nothing, alone in outer darkness, the land of the lost. That's, it's like Hades. I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given, but from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. That's not Hades. That's judgment in Gehenna. And so there you have it. Jesus, meek and mild, unless you give your life and your talents, you will be cast into outer darkness where men weep and gnash their teeth, that's Hades. Or maybe thrown into judgment like Gehenna and slaughtered, katasphazo in Greek. It's a fascinating word because it can also be translated 
sacrifice. The word refers to the action of of the priest or the high priest who slaughters the sacrifice in the temple, pouring out the blood on the altar. You know, people think, they actually think this, that Jesus came to end sacrifice, but maybe he came just to get it started. That's why Paul ends his entire theological discourse in the book of Romans with this statement, Romans 12.1. Therefore, therefore, I appeal to you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So, I mean, it sounds like Jesus is saying, sacrifice your life, which is my life, by the way. Sacrifice your life, your meanness, sacrifice your life, or one day your life will be taken. It's a bit terrifying. It's so terrifying that at this point we naturally think, gosh, I better be careful. And the pastor says, yeah, you better be careful. You better give 10% of your income to the church or else. And you know, when you do that, people will give, believe me, I know that, I know that. They will give some money, but not their lives. In fact, they'll give money in order to save their lives, which is the opposite of giving your life. It's attempting to buy your life, which isn't giving, that's giving to get, which isn't, which isn't giving. See, at first glance, the word of God is so terrifying that we think, oh man, I better be careful with my life. I better worry, I better get a little bit nervous about ISIS and the stock market and judgment day and the coming kingdom. I better wrap my life in insurance policies and security systems and, and good deeds and legislation and, and play it safe because I'm a little bit afraid that God reaps where he does not sow. And he takes what he does not give and that he is a severe man and not infinite love. So we play it safe because we don't have faith in grace. We play it safe, but playing it safe is entirely unsafe. That's the whole point of this parable. So I cannot scare you into being a good steward, but maybe I can scare you into taking another look at the word of God, at Jesus, the the severe man. And maybe, maybe God destroys your house. Maybe he really does. Maybe he even wrecks your life so that you'll stop trying to save your life and you'll look at Jesus, the savior. And, And maybe there's no place safer in all this world than hanging on a cross with Jesus because he said you must lose your life if you ever want to find, that's what those things are for, losing your life. And you do realize that each one of us must lose his or her life. We each must die. Every time I say that it feels like a shock, but you know that, we each must die. God will take your life. Unless, of course, he can't. 
And you can't take your life if you've already given your life. Because <laughs> then it's not your life, it's, it's his life. He can't take your life, in other words, if you're a living sacrifice. Well, anyway, let's look at Jesus. Let's watch Jesus. Jesus finished his story, verse 28. And when he said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. It's Palm Sunday. In a week, it will be Easter. He's going up to Jerusalem. The Bible refers to Jerusalem as a bride. The Bible refers to you as a bride. And if Jerusalem is a bride, well, then the temple is the heart of that bride. And in Jesus' day, that heart was a stone heart, locked down in fear and shame. Daily, the priests attended to the sacrifices, but God had made it clear through the prophets that although he had commanded the whole sacrificial system, it wasn't sheep and goats, sacrifices and offerings that he really wanted. What he wanted was mercy, chesed, that steadfast love poured out. That's giving your life for another. God had always said, the life is in the blood throughout the Old Testament. The life is in the blood, life is in the blood, life is in the blood, and the life belongs to me. The blood belongs to me. You know, we think the whole thing is a barbaric, but maybe we're barbaric. I mean, you do realize, don't you, that every time you eat a cheeseburger, you slaughter a cow? Every time you eat a slice of bread, you take the life of a plant, and maybe you say thank you, but you probably don't even mean it. Did you realize that every time a Hebrew killed an animal on their journey through the wilderness, they were commanded, Leviticus 17, to bring the ox, sheep, goat, whatever, to the sanctuary, return the blood to God who gave it, and offer the animal as a peace offering, eating it with gratitude and joy before God, the giver of life. See, we think this sacrifices and offering were just about appeasing this bloodthirsty, angry God, when in fact they were all about a great banquet called the wedding supper of the lamb, a a banquet, well, kind of like the banquet that they just had in Zacchaeus' house. The temple was about recognizing that God gives life and we must return life grateful for that life. It's it's actually not our life. (laughs) It's God's life. And the life is in the blood. The temple was all about circulation. Just like a heart is all about circulation. And Jesus said, destroy this temple and I'll rebuild it in three days. Well, that got the priest so angry. And the way Jesus just gave himself away, so angry that they had him arrested. And Jesus said, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. From now on, I mean, as if he had received a kingdom and would be coming back for the rest of time itself. Well, the citizens, they get so angry, they chant, crucify him, crucify him. A delegate speaks up on behalf of Jerusalem to Rome saying, we have no king but Caesar. We do not want this man reigning over us. And so they betray him, they deny him, they beat him, they lead him outside the city, and they nail him to a tree naked. And yet Jesus did not lead a life of quiet desperation. And he did not die with the song still in him. He died singing, 
Remember Psalm 22, the first line, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It ends with this line. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. In other words, it is finished. According to scripture, Jesus descended into Hades where he preached to the spirits in prison, to the dead, and led a host of captives free. Then God exalted him high above every name that is named. All judgment, all judgment has now been given to him, and he has received a kingdom that is in fact all things, all things. On the cross, he cried, it is finished and delivered up. Perididomai, he gave up his spirit. It's the spirit of life, the spirit of love, the spirit of advent, the spirit of adventure, the spirit that falls on the church in the book of Acts. It's the spirit in the blood, the oxygen in the blood. He delivered up his Holy Spirit. The earth shook, the tombs were open, and the veil in the temple, separating God from his people, it ripped from the top to the bottom. God was performing heart surgery on his bride. And that day, as the curtain ripped, her heart was unclogged. Just a few hours before, Jesus had sat at table, trapeza, with his 12 disciples. He took bread and broke it, saying, this is my body. And he took the cup, saying, this is the covenant in my blood. The life is in the blood. And then he set it on the table. Jesus is the king. Jesus is the good steward. Jesus gives his life. Why? Because he trusts that God is good. He gives his life and he helps us give our lives. He didn't sacrifice so none would sacrifice. He sacrificed so that we would all sacrifice. He gave his life so we'd all give his life. The temple is a heart and the heart contains a throne. It is Christ's life that flows from the throne and it's Christ's life that returns to the throne and you are his body through which his life flows. So the measure you give is the measure you get. Giving life is called grace. So to him who has will more be given, and to him who has not, even what he has, which would be what? A blood clot, will be taken away. You must surrender life to receive life, but not just a little life. All the life, like a river, all the life. You can't contain it all, but, it, but you have it all. It's flowing through you constantly, a river. It's the economy of absolute grace. If you get scared of losing your life and so hang on to the life, what happens? The body dies and you die, like a blood clot makes a body part die until the great physician unclogs it, until the great physician cuts you, catasfazo, causes you to bleed. But you see, once you lose, your life, you find God's life. Once you surrender your life, you receive more life, eternal life, an endless river of life. It's the life of love and God is love and love is happy. So you get the picture, bride of Christ? Love is happy. And yet, love hurts. 
when only one does the loving. But if you love in hope, even when it hurts, if you give your mina in faith, even when others don't, well, that must be like the spirit of adventure in you. That must be like the advent of an entire new creation, and that must be why you can't just sit there. Larry Walter strapped balloons to his lawn chair, but it wasn't the adventure that his heart longed for. Carl Fredrickson, he strapped balloons to his house that had become his hell, and, and this happened. So Carl, he lets someone in. He had been alone in outer darkness, just sitting there until tribulation threatened his house and forced him to let someone in. And it turns out that Russell is a far greater adventure than flying his house to Paradise Falls. Well, Jesus went to Jerusalem, put his life on the trapezes, saying, take and eat, take and drink. It's your mina and you are his servant. Last time we read, remember, that many are called and few are chosen, and we realize that the many is all, and the few is Jesus, and yet maybe the few is also you. Like, like Israel, you've been chosen, blessed to be a blessing to all the families of the earth. We receive Christ's life to give Christ's life to the many, and the many is all. We must not play it safe with that life. We must not play it safe with grace. We must not act as if it's small and only ours and then be stingy about giving it away. We must not become a blood clot. You must give his life away using your particular talents to give it away and give it away with abandon and then come back week after week for more, day after day for more. The giving means money, it means possessions, uh, but even more, it means your heart. People ask, what does the church need? Well, money would be nice, it really would. It would allow us to give a youth pastor to the community, it would allow us to do better programs, it would allow us to give the word away if you're online. Giving money helps us do the online kind of thing. I mean, we have a staff that really is operating on, I think, a shoestring. It, it, it would be really great, and so money would, would be great, but most of all, we need you. We need you to find someone and invest your life in the life of that someone. I hope you see that's what church is. A church is a body circulating blood. And the life is in the blood. A few weeks ago at our prayer meeting, we were praying for the church. A friend of mine had a vision 
she saw our new church building, and she was shocked by this vision. She said it was maybe the most clear one she'd ever received. All of a sudden, the church started to like shake, and it listed, and then she was looking from the street, and it lifted up on the ground, and she realized the front of it had turned into a bow, and then it was the ship, and then these sails shot up in the air as, as if they were about to catch a wind and be driven out to sea, and I thought, that is really a cool vision, but all week, I had another picture in my mind that maybe is kind of similar, and that's, that's this. See, that's the new church building. Glenn made that for me. But I hope you understand, every person in this room, well, they're actually part of a temple. And every person in this room is an adventure. Every person, they are the advent of the kingdom of God. Stop waiting for them to invest in you. I mean that because people are like, well, I came and nobody to Stop waiting for them to invest in you. Stop playing it safe with your heart. Find a way to give your heart and invest in them. And, and, and yeah, it will really hurt at times. Believe me, you can get crucified. But if you lose your house for the sake of love, you will become God's house, love's house. If you lose yourself, for Christ's sake, you will find it and all things with him. That was cool! (laughs) (laughs) Don't check around so much, kid. (laughs) Easy, Russell. (laughs) Oh, I am ready to not be a pop. Sorry about your house, Mr. Fredrickson. You know, it's just a house. I'm here for him. Congratulations, Russell. Sir? Russell, for assisting the elderly and for performing above and beyond the call of duty. I would like to award you the highest honor I can bestow. The Ellie Badge. Wow. All right, I think that... Blue one. Red one. Blue one. Great one. Red one. That's a bike. It's red, isn't it? So on the night that we all betrayed him, and Scripture says he even betrayed himself, he betrayed his life, he gave up his life, he took bread and he broke it saying, this is my body given to you. Take it, eat it, do it in remembrance of me. 
And in the same way, after supper and having given thanks, he, he took the cup and he said, this cup is the covenant in my blood poured out for the four the forgiveness of sins. I give this for sin, and what is sin? Well, isn't it like claiming the blood as your own? I give you this blood for the forgiveness of sins. Well, you see, uh, this is your mina, and this contains the spirit of adventure. The life is in the blood. In Jesus' name, amen. And so Jesus paid your debt. <laughs> and what was your debt? It was a blood debt. You were hanging on to the blood. And he is the blood. He is the life. And what does Jesus do? He returns the life to the temple. He returns the life, and then what does the Father do? He gives the life. And what does the Spirit do? Well, he inhabits uh, the life. He's the oxygen in the blood. You see, we see God as such a threat, and he is a threat to hell, your hell, because he's inviting you to participate in the very life of the Godhead, and God is happy. So thank you, Lord God, for who you are, and thank you, Lord Jesus, that you said you made us your body and your bride. Thank you, Lord God, that you are absolutely good. In fact, you are so good that you have given everything so that we would trust your good and that we would give you away and receive you and participate in the very life that is you, Lord Jesus, filled with your spirit forever and ever and ever. Thank you. Amen.